KISU City Club is presented by the Idaho Humanities Council, enhancing the quality of life in Idaho by broadening public awareness, appreciation, and understanding of literature, history, philosophy, and other humanities disciplines. More details are on the web at idahohumanities.org. For those of you who have followed the news in this area, you know that just a few weeks ago, the UN Governmental uh, Panel on Climate Change uh, reported out a pretty grim, a scary, frankly scary report when it indicated that the world has roughly a decade or so uh, to really contain carbon emissions if we are going to reach the goal in 2050 of reducing carbon emissions by 40 to 70 percent because if we don't do it by that time, then the atmospheric temperature will rise 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit and the world will be looking at a, at a very long shot at surviving the catastrophe. So our topic today could not be more relevant and our speaker's expertise could not be more timely. So I'm very happy that you've all joined us today. Our speaker, Russ Brown, familiar uh, to this very large room full of interested citizens, uh, earned a, a bachelor's and a master's from the New Jersey uh, in, uh, from the New Jersey Institute of Technology. He has enjoyed a very impressive uh, professional career. His positions have taken him at various points from New Jersey to Idaho to other points around the nation, including a long stints at the Allied Chemical Cor uh, Corporation. He's worked at Battelle, a stint at the Argonne National Laboratory, worked at various times in Westinghouse and Exxon Nuclear Corporations. Uh, his long list of impressive presentations to conferences, his papers, seminars, is longer than my arm, but they include presentations to the Yale Medical School, the National Cancer Institute, the University of Utah Medical School, and presentations uh, and participation in some very uh, important international conferences, including participation in some NATO advanced study institutes, one in France on uh, decision risk and environmental uh, quality impact analysis, another in Italy on uh, epidemiology and the quantitation of risks from radiation and other agents. Uh, his career is fascinating, his expertise is broad and wide and deep, and the most curious thing to me about this, and I don't know if he'll talk about it today, but I noticed that his thesis was on the, uh, was, excuse me, on the behavior of, of reactors. And, and in, in my own inquiring mind, I wondered, did they behave badly or did they behave well? Please invite to the podium Russ Brown. I'll start with the easy part of this presentation. This is the history of our world in one picture. And if you're looking at where humanity belongs, it's the last slender sliver at the bottom. It starts about 4.54 billion years ago when all the celestial masses combined to form a planet of sorts, probably mainly volcanoes. The next stage was recently found in Australia a year or two ago, a zircon chip was found. 
and they examined it and using radiation decay techniques determined that it was 4.4 billion years ago. Only a tenth of a billion or a hundred million years older than the creation of the planet. And I won't spend a lot of time on this, but it's, it, is a, it is an interesting issue. The next one, which should be located up there someplace at about 215, actually it was 250 million years ago, there was a huge extinction caused by volcanism in Asia. It wiped out probably all but small cell living beings. That was the Permian extinction, followed in 60, followed at a distance, 65 or 66 million years ago by the Cretaceous Paleogene extinction, which wiped out the dinosaurs. So life has had a fresh start on several occasions. We are not heading for anything like that unless there's a great surprise that comes out of the, <laughs> out of the universe for us. Uh, and you can see the Holocene era is where humanity of some sorts developed. And what I'll show at the outset is some things that confused me badly. And I should have at the outset remarked that climate has always changed. It's only a matter of degree and time period. This is a graphical and a very confusing record of how climate has changed over the last five million years, which is only a, a finger snap in time scales. We're out at the last 500 to 800,000 years. And in that period, with a periodicity of about 100,000 years, our planet, where our forebears had to have lived, cycled at about 50 to 55,000 year intervals between ice ages, where we are now, and absent human activities and industry and energy, we would be heading downward in terms of temperature for the next 50,000 years. In terms of temperature changes that we talk about that are occurring in the world, the average temperature decline for that period for the entire globe was about 10 degrees centigrade. And excuse me if I talk in centigrade, you can multiply by 1.8 if you want to convert, but all the numbers are in centigrade. So think about that, a 10 degree centigrade change over 50,000 years, that amounts to two, two tenths of degree centigrade every thousand years, hardly noticeable. But what we see today is that despite the, I could call it strange, because I didn't want to say bizarre, public debate about whether it's happening or not, uh, we're seeing changes of a few degrees centigrade. It, you can take your pick, six-tenths or eight-tenths in the last 50 years. Uh, I checked, once I got interested in this, I checked the Goddard Institute of Space Studies database. There's the GIS NASA system. And they post them regularly. And I made up my mind I wouldn't look at a particular year and compare it to another year which in research is called cherry-picking the data. You get to 
choose your interval, I would look at 10-year averages. And I looked at the most recent 10-year averages, and I made each decade increment by a year. And out of the last 43, it's 44 now, but the last 43 10-year increments all through the long period, I found 37 had positive increments between themselves and the next 10-year increment. Six had negative increments. Offer a strong hint that climate is changing. And as I said, if you look at this, you see that the changes are perpetual, not noticeable if you're living in them. Uh, so it made me think a great deal of just what has happened and what will happen. And in, I wasn't so confused before I <laughs> started preparing for the talk, but I, uh, I became more so, and I looked at the detail for instance, in the last 800,000 years. Well, I forgot there's another intermediate period. This shows you what it looks like within 100 or 120,000 year period. There's lots of small perturbations. The other thing I asked, why? Well, it's easy enough to say that planetary motions controlled by gravity and everything will cause these effects. And the long cooling curve as temperature decreases, is a function of the fact that our planet's oval, or planet's orbit, goes from an almost perfect circle to an ellipse, more of an oval shape. And year by year, over 50,000 or 55,000, take your choice, that radius changes by an infinitesimal amount and the planet over 50,000 years becomes cooler. The next 50,000 starts back in the other direction. Another time, time posting I saw, I just read last, within the last several months, they discovered the remains of a Native American child and they were dated at 12,600 years ago, found in Montana. And it made me think more about the fact that all of our ancestors were descended from hunter-gatherers in the period up from that last glacial period. So it's sort of striking. I, anyway, as I said at the outset, climate is always changing. What does the climate consist of by, with the experts? And by the way, I should, I should pass a compliment to the International Panel on Climate Change. What they have produced is two extraordinary reports. I'm bowled over by what they have recorded, analyzed, and reported. It's startling. Its only drawback is there's so much of it, it's a question of where you go to look. Uh, the latest report is 1,500 pages long, and each page is like a three or four page equivalent in a book. So there's a lot of reading to be done. I, I got it, I think I got the first copy from Amazon.com when it came for sale, because I had my word in. <laughs> and the package arrived, I said, oh my. <laughs> anyway, what is the climate? What are the components of the climate? And these are all logical, but I had never thought of it in this case, in, in, this, in this particular way. Atmosphere, 
Okay, we know about that. Hydrosphere, the oceans. The cryosphere, which is the ice, the Antarctica and the northern reaches. The lithosphere, which is soil. And the biosphere, that's us and all the other humans. What drives it is, as I mentioned, solar system dynamics. And I can understand the concept of an increasing radius over 50,000 years or early, earlier sequences on the, the, the previous slide. Put the previous slide back up again. If you can. The periodicity changes about 800,000 years ago. And it went back to 41,000 year cycles. So you, you move a little more quickly between warm and cool areas. Before that, it was down to around 20, uh, 23 and 19,000 periodically. I still cannot imagine why, because I don't think the solar system has changed that much. And I don't think there are mysterious objects zipping through in a period, <laughs> periodic manner to make, our, to make our temperatures rise up and down. So it's a mystery to me. <laughs> anyway, the things that control it, as I've just said, are solar system dynamics, Volcanism occasionally, all that's, I consider that minor compared to the rest. Uh, and, ah, I forgot the last. I didn't, but I didn't dare mention it before lunch was over. The anthropogenic effects on climate. We are the only species that I can think of that can have effect on the world's climate. There are t only two, and this was probably the, the revelation I got from the IPC report. There are only two quantifiable measure attributes for climate. One is global mean surface temperature. It doesn't mean our weather here or any place else. Global mean, and as I mentioned, it changes by these processes, whatever their roots are. Uh, at about two-tenths of a degree centigrade every thousand years. Eleven of the twelve highest values since we've begun measuring it have occurred between 1995 and 2006. We're an industrious active species and we require a lot of energy. The other attribute is sea level. And sea levels vary from the glacial periods up to where we are now. Uh, I read in a, another book uh, that they are as large as 400 feet. Imagine a 400-foot drop in sea level, and you then consider France and the UK will be connected by land for harmonious relationships. <laughs> Alaska will be linked to Siberia by a land bridge. And that young Native American child who died in Montana 12,600 years ago had some Asian DNA. So it is quite possible that his ancestors had come across that land bridge. Uh, so there's a, there's a thought of, of connectedness uh, the other thing is that the most, most of the heat, absorbed heat, goes into oceans. The oceans 
uh, are a big heat sink. That's why we don't include them in our measurement of surface temperature. I said the primary forcing functions are orbital distance from the sun. During the last five million years, yeah, on the other one, uh, you had 100,000-year cycles, 41,000-year cycles, and some in around 20,000. The next, the next slide now. This has a, this has something that's worth considering because it affects, uh, it affects our perceptions. If you notice the light pink, it trails temperature by about as much as 2,000 years. The pink is carbon dioxide, and carbon dioxide is a representation as climate is increasing with increased plant growth and descending with decay. So there's a difference between the carbon dioxide levels uh, uh, on the rise and when they go down. So right now, we're approaching a maximum of the interglacial area. But with our carbon dioxide at the highest level it has been in the last 800,000 years. So we've set a record. Sea levels are up, and they're not quite washing over the shores at New York City um, or the Maldives, where they only have a few feet to go uh, to wipe it out. Uh, but they will rise if the temperature continues to rise. Next slide, please. This is the late hundred eight. This is the last eight hundred thousand years, and it can shows it shows just how active humanity has been. Carbon dioxide was moving along just about in a regular pattern, as much as you can expect. And in this century, has risen to, risen to record levels. Carbon dioxide levels are reported monthly from the, state, from the uh, monitoring state in Mauna Loa. And the data are all available. We are up to, and this one's dated a little bit, we're up to over 400 parts per million now. So we have what, in, by any standard, is called a, a driving force. There are two major driving forces for climate change. One is carbon dioxide, which has the majority of effects at the moment, and methane is the other. Now, for all of the physicists in the audience, who are probably legion, think of carbon dioxide carbon atom and two oxygen atoms, both fairly weighty. There's a lot of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but it does its job. Why carbon dioxide is important is not as an insulator, but as a radiator. It absorbs energy from the planet and radiates it back. Otherwise, if it wasn't up on the stratosphere, it would pass on into outer, the energy would pass into outer space. So they're not insulators. They're collectors of radiant energy, and they send them back. And carbon dioxide is small change compared to methane. Think of methane. 
a carbon atom and four little light hydrogen atoms. It has 26.4 times the radiative forcing effect of carbon dioxide. And that will set the stage for something I'll mention in a bit. But that is our, our greatest vulnerability. The IPCC observed that probably more than half of the observed increase in global temperature was caused by anthropogenic changes in the atmosphere. Right now, their, prospect, their perspective is for global average temperature increase by another one and a half degrees in, in the next few hundred years. Uh, global sea level means will increase by, by 2065 up to a third of a meter, which is uh, about a foot, which doesn't sound threatening, and by 2100 to double that. So seaside towns, uh, given the changes in tides and storms and everything, may be facing more problems. In 1950, the anthropogenic forcings, that is what humanity contributes with its activity, with its industrial activity, uh, population activity, and now I must make a confession. I, for a period of years, took very energy consumptive vacations. I used a lot of energy getting to where I had to do it and a lot of energy while I was there. And fortunately, I damaged one knee so I can show moral purity by not doing it anymore. <laughs> I also told my children I was spending their inheritance doing it. But and here is the kicker. 1950, the anthropogenic forcings were about a six-tenths. Now, one and a quarter, I'm, yeah, roughly 1980, and, and then 2011, two and a quarter. So they're rising sharply. The other thing is, which really gets critical, is since the beginning of the industrial era, methane concentration has increased by a factor of two and a half, and methane will become the dominant contributor. Methane is currently monitored by about 100 stations. It's very likely, this is the IPCC again, because among my other lack of credentials, I'm not an oceanologist. Arctic sea level cover reduction by the end of the century could be in the fairly wide range of 43% to 94%. As I said, there's a 26.4-fold difference in the radiative efficiencies. And they've also said overall there's medium confidence that the emissions of methane from wetlands is liable to increase. And here is the sticker for us. Substantial quantities of methane are believed to be stored in the sub submarine hydrate deposits at the continental margin. Recognition of that, but the amount of methane stored in the Arctic tundra, the wetlands, or Arctic wetlands as much as they can be, uh, which represent about a 17% of the world's area. The relative difference in the radiative efficiencies uh, create a terrible risk for the future. The 26 four 
0.4 fold radio, radio, radio after facing makes releases from the ocean and tundras a high risk factor. Climate change 2013 does not deal with those uncertainties for good reason. They're undefined. Note that 400 parts per million, that's unprecedented. And it's a push and a driver for something is called a positive feedback loop. And the positive feedback loop in this case is the most threatening thing that I have seen uh, in my look at the whole system. A rise in temperature and something eerie happens. Carbon dioxide does its job, causes the Arctic tundra to get warmer, not to mention the ice surface. When it gets warmer, the rate of methane release increases. And we have what in the chemical industry, uh, which in olden days had many explosive systems. Things went badly. They sometimes had to send us out to places to see if we could calm them down. Uh, sometimes facilities exploded. Uh, I, w I had to go to, Nor or to Baton Rouge once. They were trying to make an exotic rocket fuel oxidizer. And they had to stop because the system was exploding. <laughs> and they didn't want to increase the scale. Otherwise, you have facility destruction. So we took a look at it, and, and it involved a positive feedback loop, which is the output from, from one part of your system feeds back into the other. All we had to do was to change it from a the in spray of a, a potassium hydroxide droplets into a fluorine atmosphere and change it <laughs> and reverse the order. Heat transfer taken care of, no explosions, no people, no facilities destroyed. Okay, there's, it, again, it reports methane at high levels and CO2 at high levels. The sought, <laughs> the ups and downs are concerned, but they're fairly well established. We have to anticipate that our descendants are going to be in for cooler times. Now, because of the elevation in temperature right now, that may be delayed, and the IPCC observed it in their latest report. They stated it could, it could delay the onset of the next glacial area by about a thousand years. However, if the carbon dioxide and methane, and methane's the killer, <coughs> continue to rise, they could delay it for the whole cycle, and I have no idea what that does. That means a very, very large population exposed to very large changes in temperature. The other tricky part about this, and it's hard to realize because our daily lives are in the environment and the time period in which we live, is that within, at most, our hydrocarbon resources will have been consumed. And whether it's 300 year, 200 years or 300 or 400 years, our descendants, 
will be facing life without fossil hydrocarbons to power transportation, manufacture, almost everything else. And that sounds apocalyptic, but it's practical. Continental plate movements are, have been responsible for a large fraction of our oil and hydrocarbon production. They take millions of the remains, plankton, other organisms in the ocean, and gradually, and I mean gradually, it takes about 25,000 years for a layer of fresh organic material to get to a level of temperature where they start to be transformed into hydrocarbons as we see them. It's a long transformation, and another 20 or 25,000 years, they get deep enough where they start to be degraded to shorter chain hydrocarbons. So your petroleum becomes, say, hexane. Your hexane eventually becomes methane again. Her old friend pops up. So we're involved in a long cycle, and I certainly have no powers of prediction, but I don't even have a solution for it. But change is inevitable. We're having climate change now, and I would say the most threatening thing I can imagine is the rapid warming of the Arctic ice and tundra, because the reserves there have not been measured, but they've been estimated in the gigaton range. And we won't know. So it has the potential to cause rapid changes for which none of us are prepared. So I'm not here to postulate a doom scenario or that all of us should repent our manifold sins, but it is it is worth consideration when we hear what I call all the way up to the highest office in the land, at best a shallow discussion of the issues. And that's the decent part of it. The rest of it is a total mess. I laugh at what I read in the, pub, in the public discourse. So these numbers are, they were terribly confusing for me. I kept asking myself why, but they do reflect in a rather clinical way, the graphical history of our world and its future. Next slide, please. Here is the magic table. And you can see methane is in the top drawer. I'm sorry, carbon dioxide. Methane is the next highest. If we double planetary methane or triple planetary methane, that 300 parts per million effect on our temperature will seem like small change. I cannot, I don't think anybody's modeled it, but the potentials are quite serious. So it's not an issue to be neglected. And I'm not sure what we can do to slow down the progress as we now stand. I say, I'm not predicting doom. The potential is there, and at least we've got to recognize that potential and think about what we do. Next slide, please. This was taken 
in the Arctic. Punch a hole in the snow, throw a match in, and <laughs> a dramatic plaything for people. <laughs> Next one, please. And this is essentially the process. Decaying organic material in a damp climate eventually degrades from the complexity of organic substances down to the simplest level, methane being it. Uh, and releases could occur all over the northern hemisphere, not the southern hemisphere. Southern hem hemisphere doesn't, doesn't have ice ages because everything's too far north. And Antarctica is not exactly a heaven for organic material. By the way, we owe the Russians all the credit for the data that's coming out about the age of these substances. This is an odd, an odd observation, but they distinguish or they can estimate the change in conditions in our world by comparing the relative movement of fat oxygen to normal oxygen. Fat oxygen has two extra neutrons and it moves more slowly. And they've been doing this from their station at Vostok, which has to be a hard duty regime. It's at 14,400 feet and it gets breezy in Antarctica. So I am not pushing doom and gloom, but I'm, I am suggesting that the people we have in high places who have any level of competence should start to consider this as more than a partisan issue. It's not. We all face it, and in our lifetimes, I can't imagine anyone in the room, maybe Kelly, <laughs> who, would, who would face any hardship because of changes. But I think in an order of decades or maybe a few centuries, things could get tough. And I think it's irresponsible of us to be unaware of it anyway, or to consider it as a partisan issue. Uh, and with that, I will leave you all with confusion. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you, Russ. That was terrific. Uh, have you all enjoyed this afternoon's seminar in chemical engineering and the climate? There will be a quiz after this presentation, yes. right? Before you get out. Good. So we have a number of wonderful questions here for you. I think several members of the audience, taking note of your, of your early comment, uh, that you marvel at the bizarre or strange debate in this country or conversation on whether or not climate change and global warming uh, are in fact real, they want to know what do you say to the world uh, and particularly those people who doubt uh, global warming even exists? I'd have to learn to speak a different language. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is not a cause that's near and dear to my heart, but it's an observation of the available data. Uh, there's no mystery about it. Uh, 
let's let's break that down a little bit if we if we think in terms of what scientists do scientists draw conclusions from the available evidence uh, I have read in many places that something like 99% of the climate scientists in the world agree uh, with what you've presented today uh, and that is a, a warning about the dangerous rise in atmospheric temperatures based on co2 increases and so forth would you agree that it's a 99% or so of the climate scientists in the world who have, in effect, uh, come to this agreement? The, the figure the IPC has listed is 97%. Okay. Sorry, I apologize. It's 97, it's okay. not 99. <laughs> but it doesn't make much difference. Uh, there are people with scientific credentials uh, who express doubts, and sometimes very sharply. Having been involved in some issues of public controversy in the past, I've noticed some of the same names uh, when we were going to build a supersonic transport uh, and other issues. They come up again and again. Um, some of these people, and it's unfair to categorize all of them this way, but I recognize some of the names as people who doubted the health effects of smoking. So yes, there are doubters, and there's not only room, but there's a need for people to be skeptical, to raise issues, questions, and challenge. There's no doubt about that. But there's a point where the reality starts to overwhelm you. I had no predisposition to see the potential of our climate changing in a, a dangerous manner. So let me ask a personal question. You haven't been paid by any agencies to promote the idea that CO2 increases are rising. <laughs> Thank you. I won't touch that. So a number of, a number of our audience members wonder, uh, what can we do uh, in this time and place uh, to uh, protect the world from the uh, from the consequences of the continued rise in CO2, carbon emissions, and so forth. What, what prescriptions, if you could wave a magic wand, if you wielded the, uh, the power, uh, what would you prescribe for humanity to begin to seriously address this problem? I don't know. However, uh, <laughs> in the light of what does go on in our society, uh, we could find ways to reduce the rate of change, if nothing else. Um, eventually, if you want to look ahead, eventually, when the hydrocarbon resources, which are finite, I say we're co probably consuming them at thousands of times as fast as they were produced, uh, at some point, air travel will be impractical. Uh, travel across the United States will become challenging. So early, even though it involves huge expense, high-speed rail might be an alternative, but only for a fraction of travel. Not that many people are driving back and forth across the country. But ultimately, we will have to depend on ground travel. Air travel won't work. Uh, ocean travel may be difficult. Uh, I don't know how we handle that unless we build sailboats in the future. Uh, 
things will change, and it's hard for us to understand because in our lifetimes, things have changed for more convenience, for more comfort, for more access and speed. We've all flown places, we've all traveled at great rates of speed. I, I rode helicopters for skiing. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't before I got a conscience, it just that it's something I wanted to try for the excitement. Uh, so I don't have a magic answer, but I can assure you that continuing on the path we are on, and America, United States as much as anybody, uh, is a formula for bringing that, those difficult times to us more quickly. So you're suggesting a, a dramatic reduction in the use of fossil fuel? Well, it doesn't matter. We're going to consume them anyway. Mm -hmm. You use them rapidly now. Five generations from now, or 10 or 20, won't have any at all. So that's, that's not that's just a rate process. So you're speaking to the difficulty that humans have yes. of abandoning their long-term, yes. uh, long-time habits. But what if we turn to other uh, means of energy? What would you think about that? If, if it could be done, if enough discipline could be imposed upon the body politic, would uh, resort to alternative energies uh, begin to uh, address this problem in a way that can save the planet from the kind of atmospheric temperature rise there is that a you question, mentioned. There's a question about how much we can do. Obviously, wind power can produce some energy. Solar power can produce energy. I'm not sure of the practical limits of geothermal power. Um, so the alternatives are slim, and uh, as just ethical human beings, we should do the best we can. What we can change is the rate at which things happen, not their inevitability. Now, if you want to take, want to take the long picture, <laughs> eventually, in another cycle or two, another 100,000 year, or maybe two 200,000 year cycles, fossil fuels may begin to be regenerated. Human civilization will rise to another level. Uh, but it's not a bright prospect. It's not one that generate enthusiasm. But what we're doing now is a guarantee that our environment will take a new nosedive. And that, on principle, I would think is unwise. Now you're, now you're painting a very grim picture. This beautiful sunny day, I think we're going to see a big eclipse here. And everything <laughs> is going to turn dark very quickly. Uh, are you, are you uh, of the mindset set forth in the UN report that we have roughly a decade or so uh, to bring these matters under control so that we can reach the goal in 2050 of cutting carbon emissions by 40 to 70 percent, beyond which is the tipping point? As an amateur in this field, I would say 10 years is too long a time mm. to give us slack. Uh, the positive, if I didn't describe it this way, the positive feedback loop between the effects of carbon dioxide on the Arctic tundra is the most frightening thing. That will multiply effects, increase their speed. That's probably the most dangerous thing now, even more dangerous than our daily, yearly habits. That change, and in 
in the modeling of dynamic chemical systems, especially things that blow up. Um, you've got the thing you avoid at all cost are positive feedback loops, and the one that we have is essentially being forced on us. So right now, carbon dioxide is not the biggest threat, but it's the cause of the major threat. That doesn't make us feel any better. But we need to understand it rather than to fight against it for, not for partisan reasons, probably most of it's for commercial reasons. But we don't want interference in our business activities, in our careers, our lives. And someone said, I forget, delay is the deadliest form of denial. And that, we should keep that in mind. Human beings pride themselves in being able to address problems and find solutions, and that certainly is an American trait. So we should turn off these lights and turn off the AC right now. It probably doesn't make much difference if you look at the percentage of our energy that goes into things like transportation. And I won't even mention wars. Although the wars have a benefit of killing a lot of people, so decreasing the energy consumption. I, I don't know if that would be recommended. I think the only bright spot I find is that across the world, the scientific community certainly, and a lot of the population are recognizing, not that apocalypse is about to hit us, but we have to be more small c conservative. I think that that is not an answer, but it's a good recommendation. It gives conservative a very good name. The, well, there's a lot to say about good conservatives. Yes. The, the um, uh, you said. We don't have as many as we should have. <laughs> <laughs> that was a scientific remark, ladies and gentlemen, I think. The, um, uh, Russ, what do you, what's your view on the HBO documentary, uh, Years of Living Dangerously? I don't get HBO, but I saw a preview for it. It's, from what I saw in the preview, it's over-dramatized. It's hyped up to get people wound up. Uh, I get wound up by looking at the IPCC report and looking in some table, and I say, ooh, that's scary. And the IPCC, I have one other recommendation to make this August group. The IPCC is, I'm sure, going to put out at least one more, if not two more, reports. And I think they may be, I can't make an accusation, but they might seem to be falling into the trap to saying if we study it in great deal, in great length, we have done our job. And I think particularly with regard to the positive feedback loop between carbon dioxide and methane, their job needs to change quickly. Uh, alarm is necessary. Let's turn uh, back to a moment for a moment to the issue of methane. Yes. Uh, a couple questions on that. Uh, does um, methane gas to, created by domestic livestock have any significant effect yes. on climate change? Could you address that? Yes. Please? That's one of the significant elements, but I suspect while it's significant, it may be minor human beings, <laughs> same thing. 
all no, organic species. No prescriptions for the reduction of that gas? I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, what about the possibility of harnessing methane uh, for uh, energy consumption? Any experiments, applications underway? Well, yes, it could be done. And guess what happens? It produces carbon dioxide. <laughs> now, a lesser, a lesser impact, but the heat probably, knowing the laws of nature, between the heat generated by the combustion of methane and the potential energy of the carbon dioxide, it probably wouldn't make much difference. So as you describe this, this world, post-apocalyptic world, uh, sea levels rising, drought patterns increasing, and, and other dangerous actions, uh, if, if, you're, if you can't prescribe any remedies, and we have less than 10 years or so to undertake any remedies that might save us from these consequences, should we all just go play golf this afternoon? Is that it, and not, not worry about these? I mean, is there, can you, can you identify some small steps that we in America or another major uh, carbon producer, China, for example, can undertake? Should we stop using coal, for example? Should we turn to, to return to my earlier question, should resort to uh, alternative energies in a serious way? We could develop alternative energies as rapidly as possible, but ultimately, they're probably now, or they're, you know, playing golf. People are now using vehicles to play golf, I think. Shame on you. <laughs> now, I say that as a person that used a lot of energy for 10 years in British Columbia. So let's look at a couple of prescriptions. What about planting millions of trees? Can we, can we protect ourselves even in a small way by doing that? It wouldn't hurt but it probably doesn't make a hell of a lot of difference. So such an optimistic luncheon. <laughs> Eat more dessert. I think that's it's what nice. we're talking about. <laughs> what about this? What, about, what effect does the weakening of, of the Earth's electromagnetic field have on our weather? I don't know. Right. What, would the continental, what, what would the continental drift uh, account for in terms of cycle uh, change in our weather? I don't know. Have any of the ice sheets around the globe expanded over the past several years? Have they expanded over the past several years? There are changes in the ice sheets uh, on a yearly basis. Uh, uh, Greenland has phases, and those phases are not necessarily in fit. They're not actually in tune with other things that are happening in the world. The underground river in Greenland has been picking up volume. Uh, so the melting, uh, arguing about from one year to the next of a particular area is difficult and complicated, but there are things that are occurring. Uh, Antarctica is going to stay frozen for a long time because it's so far south. And as a, a kindness, I didn't speak to you of the tilt of the Earth's axis, which gives us seasons, or the wobble in the axis, which gives us variety. We didn't go too much into, into planetary, planetary dynamics. Uh, 
But I don't know if there's an easy answer to any of these things. You know, on, on the issue of, of um, possible prescriptions for protection, there is currently, as you know, a great deal of debate about the, uh, about the Keystone uh, XL pipeline. Uh, and the Obama administration, for now, has delayed uh, making that decision for a number of reasons. Uh, and, and the concern about building that, of course, is that uh, it will, some people believe, encourage uh, Americans' oil addiction. Do you have views about the Keystone XL pipeline only, project? Only partial. Uh, the Keystone oil pipeline is going to be sending some of the nastiest crude material from Canada to our south, most of which will be exported. So it's a business enterprise, which I understand. Uh, the potential damage to the countryside through which passes is a concern. Uh, but it's not going to change our situ situation much. And even though it's not part of this discussion, I did look, because I have spent some time in British Columbia and Alberta, uh, what's going on in Canada now to give you an idea of the scale of the desperation. The mining and processing of tar sands, when complete, will have in approximately the area of the state of New York, which is a fair amount of devastation. And if I'm sure they'll paper it over or cover it with something. We're down to desperate measures in some ways. There is a proposal, if you're looking for a really strange idea, to create oil. I say create oil or create precursors to oil in the Green River Basin in Utah. All it lacks is water and energy to process the material. <laughs> uh, so it seemed to me like a strange, but some companies applied for permits. I don't know how they do it. And it would be particularly nasty because they're taking primitive material that may be millions of years old with all the chemicals in it and the processing is going to produce gases, which may have an unseemly effect on the atmosphere. So that's probably the, the bottom line for hydrocarbon energy production. I wish it were otherwise. I think there's a column in today's Post Register about the Keystone Project. I think. There is. Is there? Is there, as a matter of fact? Thought so. Here's an interesting question for you as time expires. Uh, the elephant in the room seems. Uh, to be the, the fact that we have a growing number of people. Our population around the world increases, meaning the generation of uh, more energy needs. Is there something to be said uh, for reducing our population as a means of curbing uh, these kinds of problems that we're discussing? I suppose there is, but I don't know what there is to be said. Okay. Uh, I have three children myself. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, so, Great. I'm not, this is not retroactive guilt for everybody, uh, but that is part of the problem. We've become successful. We've become successful in making a good life for people, an enjoyable life, at least in some parts of the world, other parts of the world not so much. 
uh, and population continues to increase. And I suppose it will until resources become slim, energy becomes slim, food production becomes more difficult, but then the corrections will be unpleasant. So I really don't have anything rational to say about it. It's a, it's a tough one. That's a big question, a big question on which to end this program. I'm very sorry that our time has expired. Uh, let's offer a nice round of applause to our guest, Russ Brown. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for joining us. The Idaho Falls City Club on KISU is supported by the Idaho Humanities Council, promoting good citizenship through civil discourse, civic engagement, and reflection on the public good. More information is online at idahohumanities.org.